Well, it's my first time preaching in this series. The boys have held down the fort so far. And so um, I'll try and do my best to keep up. But uh, this morning, uh, we finally got a slide. <laughs> uh, sorry, I dropped the ball in making a graphic. Um, it's taken us four weeks, but here we are. Um, so this morning, I get to speak on exactly what Scott and Pam have already spoke on. So if you've already got enough out of this morning, just enjoy yourself and have a relax or something. But we're going to do a bit of a Bible study this morning on 1 John 4, and it's actually called uh, the Love Chapter. Don't let that fool you. It is one of the most um, gut-wrenching and soul-stripping truths in, in the Bible, this love that we're about to talk about. It's not all airy-fairy and, uh, I don't know, you know how cartoons represent love. It's not that kind of love. And... Uh, so if you've got your uh, notebooks and pens, uh, we're going to go into 1 John chapter 4. And uh, John actually starts this chapter off by uh, speaking uh, to, to the churches. This is a letter that was written. It has no specific church it was meant to go to. It was actually meant to be um, a, a letter that was circulated. So this was for all the churches, not just a specific Place, but one of the reasons that John actually wrote this letter was to refute some heresies that were being taught at the time. Uh, the the main heresy that was being taught, the, the the fallacy that was being taught about Jesus was this: that he was fully God, but not fully man. That was that was what was being taught because at the time they were okay to believe that he was fully God. They could get their heads around a man who lived the way he did if he was fully God. But they would, they would say that he wasn't fully man. I know you saw him. I know there was eyewitnesses. I know that, uh, uh, that you think you saw him. But it was just like he was just apparent. He wasn't real. It's, um, it's almost like he was fully God but kind of like those Coachella holograms that perform. He wasn't really there. And so uh, John, in his old age, was addressing this fallacy because uh, we believe in a God who is fully God and he was fully man. Why is that important when we talk about love? Uh, 1 John 4 verse 2 says this, By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So he was giving them a a quick test to uh, test the teachers of the time. If they say he was fully God and fully man, you know it was of God. But the reason that it was important was because he was about to launch into one of the most radical and game-changing teachings of the Bible. And if we could just pass it off that he was fully God, but not fully man, kind of man. I know he looked like a man, but he was this divine creature who appeared as a man. If, if that was the truth, then the, then the love that he displayed and gave for us as an example well, how could we ever live up to that? 
How could we ever express or, or, or love the way that Jesus loved if he was just a divine being? But, but John is getting this right from the start. I want you to know that the love that Jesus showed was not done because he was some divine superior being floating on the earth. He did this love and expressed this love while he was fully man. And so the implications for you and I are that that is the example that we must follow. If he was just fully God, there's no hope. We would never live up to that. But he did this love and showed this love, expressed this love as a man and as God. Uh, John, I think, is probably the most qualified guy to speak to write this to write this letter on love, the love chapter. Uh, if you've read John's gospel, some of his earlier writings, uh, you'll see that he gave himself a nickname, and I'm pretty sure Adam talked about this, but he gave himself a nickname. Usually, you wait for someone else to give you a nickname, right? But John, uh-uh, he gave himself a nickname, and, and it went a little like this. The disciple whom Jesus loved... doesn't roll off the tongue like Johnny boy, but the disciple whom Jesus loved and and it kind of merged into, this is what he would call himself, the beloved. Jesus' love for John was so apparent, was so real, it was so tangible that it actually encapsulated his whole identity. His whole identity, he's like, you know what? Don't call me John, call me the beloved. He he was so wrapped up in God's love for him that it became his identity. Try turning to your neighbor and say, hey, I'm the beloved disciple. Just give it a go. Roll off the tongue. Feel right. Could we shorten it? Yeah, Pam is the beloved. She's she's told us this morning. For some of you, that felt like, uh uh-uh, nope, I'm not the beloved. For some of you, like, yeah, I'm the beloved. But John allowed this love, this love to absolutely just uh, paint every part of his life to the point that Jesus' love became his identity. And then the reason he can write about love is because he knew it. And it doesn't just affect his life. You watch all through this chapter when he's addressing the church, you know what he calls them? Beloved. Once you know the love of God, you can give the love of God. It doesn't just change the way you see yourself. It changes the way that you see people. And my, what, what's my point here? You, you can't give the love that he's about to teach us unless you understand it's been given to you first. This love does not come from your own strength, willpower, or I will, I will, I will, I love that person. It comes because you understand that you're loved and so you love. And if you're here this morning and you are thinking, I do not know the love of God. 
I don't know how much God loves me. Everything but his love is my identity. I, I, I let my problems identify me. I let my circumstance, my status, how, how successful I am, that becomes my identity. I, I would encourage you, let you, for the rest of your life, let it be the quest of your heart to understand how much God loves you. How do you do that? How did John do that? In John 13, 23, it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. You know why John knew he was loved? He stayed close. He stayed close. So close. So close to rest his head upon the chest of his, of his master, of his teacher. He stayed close. And if you don't know how to get close, it's not through rituals and jumping through hoops and things like that. Read his word. See what he did for you. How he thinks about you. How he loves you. Get out into creation and take in all the awe-inspiring things that he created. Get, make some silence in your life so he can speak to you. Pray, worship, get close, and you will understand how much he loves you. Right. So we've got one word into the chapter, beloved, great. Next word. No. We're going to go, we're going to skip down to 1 John 4, 7, and Scott read through it before, and we'll do it again. But these are some of the most challenging verses in the Bible to me. Some of the most challenging verses. Let's read them together. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God and so he responded, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Wait, John, you're saying no one's seen God, but if we love like Jesus loved, that's when people see God. You you mean that to every atheist question of, you know what, I'm not angry. I just, I just want to see that he's real. Your answer is not that we would show them the rules, but we'd show them love and they'd see God. That an earth calling out going, just show me. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm not, I'm not indifferent. I really want to, I want to believe. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll show you. My people will love each other the way I loved. And then you'll know. This is a game-changing scripture for all who are reading, all who are listening. How much, how how far is this love thing going to reach, John? It's pretty big already. He skipped down to 19. It says this, we loved because he first loved us. 
Yeah, okay. We love because he first loved us. Great. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Game-changing scripture. Because at the time when Jesus came, they, they, weren't operating under, they weren't operating underneath this model. Uh, Andy Stanley does a great teaching on, on this in his uh, brand new series. But um, they're operating under a model called the temple model. And I'll explain what that thing is in a minute. But, but Jesus came to do a new thing. He came to do a new thing, and he still comes to do a new thing, and you and I. And until the arrival of Jesus, the only way people knew that they were right with God or living in the will of God for their lives was if they did everything according to the law. Right. They did things for God in order to be right with him. And this was temple model. If you've got that camp, temple model. Temple model, and this is not just um, specific to, to that time. This is uh, world, relig- world religions all across the world still use this model. That a temple model has sacred places. You go to a place and it's sacred. That has sacred texts that are, that are continued to be transcripted throughout the times and they're kept and they're sacred. You have sacred men who minister on behalf of the people and you have sincere followers or scared followers uh, who just try and follow every single thing that's done so to make sure they're right with God. This was the model that Jesus, uh, when Jesus arrived, was in operation and um, when he came to earth, it, it wasn't to make a 2.0 temple model. He wanted to make a brand new thing. Tiny bit of a history lesson. Here's Pink Bromhead here. Oh, dang you are. <laughs> just go with it if it's wrong, all right? No, it's not wrong. I just don't have heaps of details. All right. Tiny bit of a history lesson. In about the 4th century, what actually happened was um, this Jesus movement, this beautiful grassroots Jesus movement that, got, that totally uh, invited people to abandon this temple model, became the, the uh, dominant religion of the Roman Empire. And what sadly happened... Uh, not by really any organization of doing this or anything like that, but a kind of temple model for Christianity began to be introduced because this was the dominant religion. And so, of course, they needed sacred places, sacred texts, sacred men and sincere followers. But what happens when you, you take the new Jesus model, which we'll get into in a second, and the old, the old temple model is it just doesn't work. It's kind of like grace and law. It's kind of like some rules, but some, uh, that kind of a thing. Like, <clears throat> excuse me. Jesus didn't 
come to make a new temple model. And so because of this uh, 4th century and, and throughout the the church throughout the ages, there's become a temple model sprinkled with a bit of Jesus. We end up with something that causes us to be ineffective of showing the love to the world. But Jesus didn't come to bring us a temple model. Now, Jesus brought us a new model, and this is what John's talking about with his love. This is what Jesus' model looked like new covenant. So a new way that men and women could could be in relationship with God. A new command, which wasn't really that new, but it superseded everything else, that you would love one another. Just take that. That was Jesus' new command. A new ethic where love trickled down into the behavior of these people who followed Jesus and which like evolved into a new movement called the church. That's what Jesus came to do. And the problem when we blend these is we come up with something that looks nothing like what Jesus came to do. Let me make it a tiny bit clearer. For example, if you feel guiltier about missing a church service than you do about mistreating somebody at work, that's a whole lot of temple model and a little bit of Jesus. If your conscience is always saying, I need to get back to church, I need to go to do this, I need to start doing that, I need to, I need to, so I'm okay with God, and you think that getting around sacred places and sacred texts and sacred people somehow supersedes the way you treat people, ah, that's temple model. The problem with temple model is that it's totally based on you. And me. Continually doing something for God, bringing something to God, jumping through that hoop. Am I right now? Am I right now? Making sure you're all right with God all the time. And this kind of model always gravitates towards rules and regulations. Oh, thanks, Deej. Rules and regulations. Excuse me, everyone. Ask questions like this. What exactly did the Bible say? What, what exactly do I need to do? It asks questions like that. Or this kind of question. I know I've asked this. How far do I have to go before it's sin? Like, how, how, where's the line? Where, how, can I, this close? Oh, he'll be cranky then? Oh, yeah, okay. So it asks questions like that. That's temple model. Or it asks this which is initially a good question. What must I do to be saved? Initially a good question. But in the Christian faith, we need to move beyond what's in it for me mentality. Because the Jesus model and the New Testament Christians believed and taught that once you place your faith in God, Jesus as your saviour and forgiver of sins, God's all right with you and you're all right with God. That's it. Point blank. No more hoops. Once you say, Jesus is Lord, saviour of my life, turn around, face him and allow him to lead you in to the rest of your life, God's okay with you. 
You don't need to work and make sure that he's okay with you all the time. And what Jesus is trying to teach us here through John is that where the temple model always focused on you, are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, uh, what am, uh, the Jesus model focuses on the you beside you. Focuses on the you beside you. And if you have embraced faith in Jesus Christ, there must be. There is no other expression of the true work of Christ other than the love you have for others. That's what John's teaching us. If Jesus is in you, it will be expressed through the way you love others. And John's not speaking in metaphors. I wish he was. I wish he was being elusive and there was more to this. John is reiterating the words of Jesus. That if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, then that will be evidenced by your love for others. In Matthew 5, 12, Jesus says this. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. That's it. Where's the other nine, Jesus? No, 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 no. Just the one. Love each other as I have loved you. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts. Wait, the the Bible's really thick. There's a lot in there. Paul, no, 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 no. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that counts. In Galatians 5.14, it says this, the entire law, every single bit of it is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, is, it's fulfilled in that. This represents a complete departure from temple thinking. No more hoops. No more, am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Of course, you, you, you need to come before God, but it says love God and love others. And every law, every law is fulfilled in this. But how could one commandment keep all of them? Let's take a look. All right, a few examples. The Bible tells us, You should tell the truth. Why should we tell the truth as Christians? I know. Because it says in the Bible we shouldn't lie. That's true. But that's not the reason New Testament Christians don't lie. The reason you and I don't lie is because when you lie, you hurt the person you're lying to. And love doesn't let you do that. When you lie, you you make an assumption that that person isn't worthy of the truth. That your needs are greater than theirs. And love can't let you do that. Where in the temple model where it would say, I won't lie because I want God to love me. In Jesus' model, it says, I won't lie because I love people. Let's take another one. All right. Be generous. Why do we be generous? 
I know. Because somewhere it says God loves a cheerful giver. I know that. That's true. But that also isn't the reason that we're generous because it told us to. No, the reason that we're generous, and this is not too hard, it helps the person we're generous to. And that's what love does. That's what love does. Let's try a thou shalt not. Thou shalt not gossip. Why don't we gossip as Christians? I know. Because I swear it said something about no malice, no... No bad words, something. I know, it's in there. I know, it's in there somewhere. No, that's right. But that's not the reason you and I, love-filled, love-expressing Christians don't gossip. The reason we don't gossip is because it undermines the person's reputation in somebody else's mind. And that's not love. It says, I would rather choose my entertainment over their reputation. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, no, 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 no. Love is not self-seeking. And that's why, that's why we don't gossip, because we love. These are just examples. You you can go through the whole New Testament and read it this way, that God is calling us to love. Now, the the old temple method, oh my gosh, if you read Leviticus, there is, uh, there's an instruction for absolutely everything. There's an instruction if your slave falls in a hole in a field. It is that detailed. And, and Jesus was just saying, no, 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 you don't need, do I have to spell it out all, like every single situation? Instagram and Facebook wasn't around. He couldn't tell you, don't be mean on it. He just told you, love. Let that be the governing factor of your life, that in every situation you ask, what does love require of me now? Jesus even went as far to say this in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Everything hangs on this. If you look at your Bible, everything hangs on this. Love God and love others. The temple method would go, oh, but do I have to love? I think Paul said over here that I didn't need to love that type of person because, oh, but then Timothy said, oh, no. Jesus says this, love your neighbor, always, full stop. No other commandment after it. And I know you think that might simplify it, make it a bit wishy-washy Christianity. Uh Uh-uh. No, 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 no. It's not a just a, it doesn't make it some big like love fest and we just don't care about anything. No, 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 no. Because when you love God, he allows you to walk in his ways. 
But while this is a less complicated model, less complicated, just love, just love, love, love. While this is less complicated, it's far more demanding. Less complicated, but it demands our whole life. The Jesus model, and if you're taking notes, write down this question. The Jesus model makes us ask in every situation, what does love require of me? In your family, what does love require of you? In your marriage, what does love require of you? At your kids' soccer training, what does love require of you? In your workplace, in your car, in the shopping center, what does love require of you? And if you think that's some easy question to answer, let's take a look. When God asked this question, it cost him his son. And when Jesus asked this question, it cost him his life. When he looked upon a dying and hurting world that was headed towards hell and said, what does love require of me here? The answer was everything. And the same way as Christians, we need to look at a lost and dying world and go, what does love require of me? Everything. Everything. It requires everything. One last story as I finish. There's a scene that takes place at the foot of the cross and it involves John, our author today. And as he stands at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother, Mary, in John 19, 26, Jesus looks down from the cross and he says, Woman, here is your son. Talking, to, talking about John. Almost a strange thing to be taken care of right then and there. Like he had been telling the disciples for weeks he was going to die. Really? Did that need to happen on the cross, Jesus? Could we not have figured that out before this moment? But he was making a point. Here a conversation is taking place while Jesus was demonstrating the greatest act of love. The act of love that the Father gave up His Son for us, the Son giving up His life for us, love was being displayed on a cross. There was this conversation going on. And I could be so bold to use a uh, Stephen Furtick illustration. Nowhere near as good as his illustration, but we'll go with it. You know, when we picture the cross of Jesus, sometimes... We, we picture that the, ho- the cross was whole. He had the, the long, it was all made together. And he was walking up the hill to take his cross. But that's not actually how they did it. The, the post that went like that was already up on the hill. He was carrying the cross beam of the cross. And so what would happen when the crucifixion takes place, the the accused or the innocent in this scenario would carry the beam that would go to the cross, but the pole was already there. So when Jesus was walking up the hill, this part was already there. And if I can use an analogy of the picture of the cross, the part that was already complete was this 
to this. Jesus was carrying the beam that would go across. And this is what John says about the cross. That until you love others, the cross isn't complete. But didn't didn't Jesus pay it all at the cross? Isn't everything done at the cross? Yeah, that's true. But John brings up a dynamic here where he says, people can't see God, but they can see us. In 1 John 4, 12, again, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And what Jesus was carrying when he went up to the cross was this, this part. But could it be that the place of the cross, which is the ultimate symbol of love, where God sent his son down, he showed his love, his mercy, that as he spoke to John on that cross, as Jesus had that conversation and said, this now is your mother. Could it be that he was saying, I have taken care of this part. I've taken care that God is okay with you and you can be okay with God, but I am leaving you, church, with this part. To complete the cross that the earth would see the love of Jesus Christ. Because the cross is only effective, church. The cross is only effective when it works both ways. This church is salt and light. Not that we try and go out and do something, not that we try and be something, to stay right with God, to do the right thing. No, because we love. Love brings light in the darkness. The question in every world that you're in, when you ask, what does love require of me, immediately brings Jesus in the situation. And that's salt. And that's line. I don't ever want to get to the end of my life and say, I judged well. That's not my job and it's not yours. Our job is to love. I want to get to the end and say, I loved well. I loved God well and I loved people well. And that's our job. How do we love? First, we need to know we're loved. We need to know we're loved. Beloved, you are loved. Stay close. How close? Close enough to rest your weary head on the chest of Jesus, to feel the breath and to hear his heartbeat, the heart that beats for love for people. And through that strength, do what Jesus did. Jesus did this. It's up to us to do this and continue to ask, what does love require of me? Amen? Let's pray as the band comes. You are a good God. Perfect love is found in you. Father, I accept the correction that you've taught me over this past few days in delving into this. And I pray that there's a release and a freedom for people who need forgiveness in this area. I pray, Father, you would open our eyes and open our hearts to how much you love us 
and therefore we can love people. Let love be the thing that draws this dying world home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.